Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England, possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last Ice Age to the present day. First, let's hear the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far. Old Roman Ibaracum has suffered neglect. The once impressive buildings are showing signs of wear and tear. No one's been collecting the rubbish, or even sweeping up, which allows compost and dark soil to build up inside the old fortress, where the remaining residents scratch at their vegetable plots. There's better land to farm on the outskirts where people have adopted Germanic ways, no matter where they've come from. There's been a swirl of movement around Europe and Britain, and this mix of populations has created the Anglo-Saxons. It's now the 600s. Business is picking up, fish is back on the menu, and the city is plugging itself back into trade with Europe, which brings not only goods, but Christianity, something which is very advantageous for the newly baptised King Edwin. So you've got a Christian king, you've got churches, York is back on the up. It does appear that way. And, um, Elsa Mayman covers this quite extensively in her book and a lot of the further scholarship that has come out after the, the publishing of Anglian York. There would have been Christianity in the city in the Roman period. We know that for a fact because we know that there was a, a bishop. But Roman Christianity vanished along with the Roman way of life. So there would have not been any Christianity or churches for this period of abandonment. I'm Elsa Mainman, uh, formerly of York Archaeological Trust, now working as a freelance archaeologist. And then we have the introduction of Christianity through Pope Gregory's mission into Kent, which finds its way with his missionary Paulinus, finds its way through the royal networks to York. So the King Edwin decides it's in his interests to become a Christian, marries a Kentish Christian princess in 627 in a wooden church built specifically for that purpose, for his baptism. Where's that? That is the big question that we would all like to know. Unfortunately, being a small timber church, there will be no traces of it. And we also know that almost immediately after his baptism, he started work on a stone church to replace it and that church in due course also fell into disrepair as Christianity experienced something of a setback when Edwin was killed. So the refurbished stone church of Edwin, which was refurbished in the end of the 7th century, um, was expected to be where the minster now stands. When work was done to help prop up the Minster in the 1960s, that was one of the great quests, was to see if there were any traces of Edwin's church to be found under the Minster. As it transpired, there wasn't. So that left a dilemma as to where this church might have been. And various scholars put forward various proposals as to where it might have been in the vicinity of the Minster, but also other scholars suggested other places completely on the other side of the river. Um, and we are still uncertain. 
I think the generally accepted view now is that the successor to Edwin's wooden and stone church and the precursor of the Romanesque minster lies in Dean's Park on the north side of the minster. But we have yet to find evidence for it. But the fact that that place would have been chosen for Edwin's baptism because it was the headquarters of the Roman legionary, so it was a prestigious high status site, and so it was selected for the baptism on prestige and it seems that then that site is likely to have perpetuated as the site of York Minster. So it's got more authority because it looks back yes. to the Roman fortress. Exactly. It's all about governance and authority. And so Edwin is making a statement, if we're right and his church is built there, by saying, you know, I have the authority that my predecessors had. The fact that they built a church for the purpose suggests there was no suitable building for such a high-status event that could have been used. And it's been endlessly argued as to whether the great basilica of um, the Roman headquarters building would have been standing at that time. And because of the circumstances of the excavation that happened under York Minster, where the, the, the main purpose of that was to prop up the Minster, not to do an archaeological excavation, but it meant it was a very piecemeal picture that came out from that excavation with very little firm dating evidence to go with. So we simply don't know whether the Great Hall, the Great Basilica of the headquarters would have been standing or would have been a dramatic ruined backdrop to the baptism or a pile of rubble. And the fact that the church was not found during the excavation suggests that the building area was probably considered unsafe or unsuitable and so they needed to be a little bit distant to put together the stone church. Yeah, it's an embarrassing if you're staging a big event and the scenery drops on you. Absolutely. We think Eofferwick uh, was on the rise after King Edwin um, sort of turned Eberachim into a new Christian centre. Then it starts to go back down when King Oswald takes over. But Oswald's state and the importance of Christian monasteries up and down Northumbria reaffirms York or Eofferwick as an important node in this trading network. My name is Alex Harvey. I'm a former Masters Medieval Archaeology student at University of York. I work for York Museums Trust and the Swedish National Heritage Board. I've specialised in the early medieval period and have a keen interest in all the obscure periods of British history, so after the Romans but before the Vikings, that area that no one claims to know much about. King Edwin, we think, was originally from the Dayran royal family, so when he takes control of Northumbria, he's, he sort of favouritises southern Northumbria around York, whereas his successor, King Oswald's, from Bernicia, which is around Bamber, so he favours that as a centre of power. And King Oswald became sanctified a short while after his death up and down Europe, an immensely famous saint. Even hundreds of years after his death in the 12, 1300s, people in the Alps are aware of Saint Oswald and the legendary stories attributed to him. His uh, arm that would never wither, that was made of silver, that's uh, one of his nicknames was Oswald Whiteblade. So we think one of the reasons why Eofowick bounced back in popularity and use as a trading centre may have been an international attraction to the cult of St. Oswald. 
there, like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of evidence for Frisians taking a significant role in the uptick of York as a trade centre. Frisians are really interesting parts of the post-Roman period, and indeed the, the Roman period. They're quite uh, overlooked as a culture group, as an identity. Um, Frisia is a nebulous sort of polity, uh, in more or less coterminous with modern Belgium and the Netherlands. It's what you'd call a liminal zone, so it's on the edge of Francia, which is France and Germany. It's on the edge of England and all the kingdoms within. It's on the edge of Denmark and wider Scandinavia. There's a lot of water, so it's a lot of water. quite good at sailing. In fact, before the Vikings, uh, Frisians were sort of the go-to maritime people. This is, of course, prior to the Viking raids on Lindisfarne and so on. Um, but Frisian is used sometimes in the early medieval period as a catch-all term for anyone very proficient at maritime travel. Right. So the, the Frisians are a really important aspect of the early medieval period and when we think of liminal zones it's almost like they're on the edge of civilization so can't be that important but if you picture for instance a map of the modern Europe you've got England, France, Germany, uh, Scandinavia slap bang in the middle is the Netherlands or Frisia back then so they have equal access to almost everywhere and along these coasts along the North Sea trading zone you have Emporia which are fortified, sometimes fortified, trading zones, and Aeofawic, hence the suffix wick, becomes an emporia. And that's where some of the money starts to roll into Northumbria. And that wick name shows up in modern place names like Ipswich. Yep. Yeah, correct. Uh, Ipswich, Hamwick, which is modern Southampton, uh, Londonwick, yeah, that's what it used to be called. Uh, Aeofawic, of course, is the big one for this uh, podcast. But yeah, all up and down England and even um, Belgium and France, there's a place called Quentevic, which uh, is, of course, a, just a slightly altered version of the same Wick suffix. So yeah, really up and down Northern Europe. And the Viking Age, just to jump ahead a bit, one of the factors why the Viking Age kicks off is the immense wealth being carried between these Wick sites, these emporia from England into Scandinavia it makes it very attractive looking to outside forces. We've got to the mid-600s, and obviously there's still quite a lot of competition for dominating the area. Yeah. Because it's doing quite well. It's quite wealthy. Yeah. Well, there's a real ebb and flow to the traditional Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. That means the seven kingdoms of England. In reality, there's many more than seven. But almost every century, a different kingdom takes centre stage if we work backwards in time from the Viking Age, that's obviously the time of Wessex under King Alfred. That's the West Saxons centred around Winchester and almost near London. That's when they're really dominant over England and they start absorbing the client kingdoms near them. Before that, in the 700s, it's Mercia around uh, Lichfield and Tamworth, a huge kingdom in the middle of England that is on the marches or borders of everyone else and they just start expanding rapidly. Uh, the King of Mercia creates a huge earthwork modelled after Hadrian's Wall to keep out the Britons called Offa's Dyke and to oversee trade. A uh, hundred years before that, in the 600s where we are now, Northumbria seems to be the dominant kingdom to some extent. As you go further back into the early post-Roman period, it's difficult to say who's in charge, who has more power, because there's so many tiny kingdoms. We think Kent took a centre stage um, in the late 500s, 
King Redvold of East Anglia, who most scholars agree might be the Sutton Hoo man. He's a really influential figure in the time. And as we get to the mid-600s with King Oswald and his successor, his brother Oswy, they become the powerful kings of Northumbria. So we've got to a time when there are more sources yeah. to talk about Dera, Northumbria and York itself. So as we move from the 600s into the 700s, what do the witness statements say? Late 600s, early 700s, this is the time of St Cuthbert and Bede, these really seminal figures of the time. Uh, St Cuthbert, uh, uh, the life of St Cuthbert, a saint's hagiography is published about him, which goes into detail about the kings that he served, so uh, Oswy, um, Egfrith after him. And then Bede, writing in the 700s, he's where we get a lot of our information about the 600 and 500s from, but of course Bede wasn't alive then, so he's using some sources we either don't have access to or his best judgment. But when we're talking about the 700s, there's a lot more information on display because, of course, Bede was alive then. And there'll be the bias in the sources, of course. You can't trust them too much. And that's where you look to the archaeology. And what the archaeology of the 700s says about York and Greater Northumbria is that Northumbria started to decline a little bit. Part of this is because of the great power and presence the church maintains um, King Oswald, just going back in time to the mid-600s, gifted a lot of land to monasteries and start-up churches, if you like, but not to household guards. So later, after his death, the church maintains quite an important presence in the north of England, almost like a rival to kings in their own right. And that starts to be, among other factors, the downfall of Northumbria, a very slow downfall. There's a lot of dynastic infighting Almost every king of Northumbria in the 700s succeeded to the throne via assassinating their predecessor. Some of it's in York, some of it's uh, in Bamber. There's two major power centres there in Northumbria and a few others like Yeavering. Um, and they sort of, it's almost random which is going to be the power centre in any given decade of the 700s. That's the Game of Thrones line, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Do we know what ordinary life was like for people? within Ithilwick? Within Ithilwick, uh, of course, go back to Anglian York, that seminal work on this time period. And it just, it just looks like Ithilwick undergoes a little bit of a dip. We think one of the reasons for this is the constant flooding of the River Ouse, which is a problem now. Imagine that, but with timber tenements and well, no high grounds, no high-rise coastal defences. Your land becomes boggy, your agriculture gets... Um, Sort of watered down, there's nowhere for boats to duck, the trade can't come in. So for short time periods, Eofferwick is not abandoned, but definitely not up to scratch all the time. And of course, the ooze is tidal at this point, yeah. isn't it? So if you get a really strong tide, mm -hmm. and like we've had in the past couple of days, a lot of water coming down the ooze and the foss, mm -hmm. it's all going to back up, isn't it? Yeah. And spill over. Yeah. If people look at the ooze now, they think, oh, it's, it's not that wide, it's got very firm banks. Yeah, but then you look at the floodplains on either side and you can imagine it would become a small ocean in, in bad times. And of course, they're not particularly properly made banks either. No. Is it more like London used to be before the embankment and everything, where you had the tide coming and going and you basically had 
sort of mud flats descending into the river. To some extent, I would imagine so. That the problem getting into Anglian York as a time period is it goes back to modern excavations. Of course, a lot of the Roman remains of York are clear as day. You can see them up and down York as you walk about. And the Viking Age um, excavations of York in the 70s and 80s under Coppergate really well preserved thanks to the uh, beautiful preservation qualities of York's soil. But the Anglian period is sort of sandwiched between the two. It's quite difficult to trace archaeologically. It's not as if the Anglian city is built on top of the Roman city and then built on top of again by the Vikings. They're in different areas. And that's why I um, mentioned earlier the tale of two cities. You've got Aofferwick on one half of the Ouse and Kerty Brauch on the other half. And eventually Aofferwick grows big enough to sort of annex, if you like, the ruins of the Roman fortress. And then Aofferwick becomes the only name that anyone describes York in the time. And you've got the Foss as well. The Foss, yeah. Which has also presumably got settlements on either side. Yeah. Is there a king in residence? In York? Hmm. Uh, it's difficult to say. The stronghold of Anglian kings within Northumbria at the time, we think, was probably where Bamber Castle now stands. There's definite evidence for a fortified uh, centre of sorts underneath the Norman Bamber Castle. That would probably be the stronghold of a royal house. Not every royal house, however, and of course there were the different dynasties. We don't think York was ever a military capital in the sense that the king would remain there and never leave because kings in this time period were sort of like roaming warriors going from place to place. York was a really important trade capital. So of course there was an interest for royals to maintain power and dominance over that. But whether or not it was a base of operations for extended periods of time, I'm not sure we could ever tell. So if you're the big man in Northumbria, you're on tour most of the time. Yeah. And you're leaving someone in charge of Eferwick and presumably collecting taxes. Part of that would have been done via the church and the monasteries, but the rest would be done via sort of like sub-officials or thanes. Uh, one of the terms thrown around a lot in the Anglian period and in, in modern scholar work is the term gesith, which is used to describe high-ranking members of royal guards almost. And these are people loyal to the king who are given land, so small farms perhaps, with enough estate to survive off. And they have the king's interests in mind and would probably be given sort of delegated responsibilities. And one of the reasons we know this and we know how governments worked in this time period is another source, which is the tribal hiddage from the mid-slash-early 700s, which is a list up and down England, not just Northumbria, of every kingdom, every client kingdom, every sub-kingdom, and how many hides they had. And a hide, we think, is a term for the yield of an amount of land. So we can use this to gauge how big or how important certain kingdoms were. So, for instance, modern North Lincolnshire, all the way down to the River Grant, we think was a kingdom called Lindsay, and that was valued at about 7,000 hides, whereas Wessex, I believe, was valued somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. So it's a much more agriculturally viable kingdom. So around York, have we got any idea of how valuable that was? It would have been a very uh, valuable region. Northumbria is a Christian powerhouse uh, in the time. We're beginning to get monastic communities, for, mm -hmm. for want of a better word. And York's most famous 
Anglo-Saxon son is Alcuin, isn't it? Yes. And he's obviously an educated man. He ends up at Charlemagne's court in Francia. But he's also very proud of York's library. Do we know anything about where that might have been? It would almost certainly, well, it would have been housed wherever the monastic community was, because they would have been the people who would have been copying it, would have been using it. And if we take the, the view that that is in the Minster area, then we can envisage that the Minster area included not only the Church of St Peter the Apostle, which is the forerunner of York Minster, but wherever the community lived, dwelt, had their scriptorium, had their library, had the school. So we can see that there would have been a, a group of buildings, which is why it's very frustrating that we can find no trace of them. And it is one of the great... Um, mysteries of York at this time is that there's this massive disconnect between the historical evidence and the archaeological evidence. History tells us that this was an important monastic community and Alcuin is obviously was a pupil and then a master at this famous school. There was the library to which scholars came but we find no trace of anything to do with that. I think we get a glimpse of it with the uh, Coppergate helmet, the York helmet that was found on the site at Coppergate in the very late stages of the excavation, which gives us a glimpse of that sort of milieu of art and culture um, to which York was part. It's a very fine piece of work and it, it would have been contemporary with Alcuin's period. It's a beautiful piece, it's the best preserved Anglo-Saxon helmet in the world. Um, on display in the Yorkshire Museum and on the nose guard you've got contrasting art styles between Germanic beast heads and dragon motifs and the uh, Celtic knots and the curvilinear lines from Ireland. So they have the wealth and resources to produce wonderful bronze artwork on the front of helmets like that and some of these helmets may have had plumes of grandiose colours. Um, so they definitely had money, Northumbria, it's, it's a it's an important kingdom, even when it's on a sort of downward slope, it's still a very, very rich kingdom. And it was one of the largest, so it covers wide tracts of land, even if some of that land starts to get annexed by other kingdoms. When taken at face value, the Copyright Helmet we have now, we look at it nowadays, it definitely is less blingy than the Sutton Hoo helmet. Uh, but of course it's removed by about 150 years in, in technological advancement and artistic changes. And it's removed similar enough amount of years from the Staffordshire helmet, which is very blingy like the Sutton Hoo one. But the York helmet or the Coppergate helmet, it is still quite a blingy piece. There's been a lot of effort that's gone into the nose guard and the bronze up and down the helmet. Really intricate patterns. It's got an inscription on the top that mentions something along the lines of this belongs to the uh, royal household guard of Oz, which uh, might be a dynasty of Northumbria, like King Oswald, King Osred, King Osric, who existed around the time this helmet was produced. But it also has some evidence of wear in battle. And there's a small faint hole on the back side of the helmets, um, parallel with the nose guard, which may have been a mount for a plume of sort. And if you imagine the Coppergate helmet with a big red plume on the top, it definitely looks a lot more blingy than it does now in its current form. Whether it had a plume or not, it's a very, very fine piece of 
craftsmanship. And you know, it's it says so much more than just being a helmet. It's a status symbol. It shows the skill of the craftsman and the, the wonderful decoration on the nasal is part of the great flowering of Northumbrian art that was happening at the time. And of course, there's an inscription on the helmet, it said, a, a prayer and a personal name. So this is a literate, cultured, high status object. It may have not been a king's helmet, but it may have been a high-ranking royal's helmet. It was found in Coppergate, which is the place where people think of when they think of Vikings, but it's pre-Viking, isn't it? Yes. It was created, we think, around 740, 750-ish, more or less uh, contemporary with the reigns of King Edbert of Northumbria or, or King Oswulf of Northumbria. So all of that implies that there is a cultural elite. It wouldn't be the sort of thing that a monk would wear or a bishop would wear. So you're talking about two major players in the city, presumably. Yes, and probably the most major of that is the ecclesiastical community rather than the king. The king would certainly want his authority to be well known and he's minting coins, um, but the, the importance of York as an ecclesiastical centre can't really be exaggerated. The kings would have been peripatetic at this time. They'd have been going round their realm, making sure that everybody understood who was in charge and um, spending not that much time perhaps in York. We've found no traces of a royal residence. We don't really know what it would look like in, in a city at that time. Um, it may be that when the king and his retinue were here, they were housed by the monastic community. It's the, the ecclesiastical centre, which is really the important one. We see scholars coming from Frisia to spend time here in York alongside that comes the, the trade with the North Sea area. Right, because it's not Ibarakum anymore. What do they call it? Yofawik. Yes. As you pronounce it. Oh, various people have various shots at it, yes. Yes, but Yofawik. Yes. Because it's spelt Eofwik. Yes. Right, I shall try and do it the way you do it, because you're the expert. Um, so we've got Yofawik, which doesn't sound too different from Yorvik, actually, but there's that evolution. As I said, York is attached to the North Sea on two tides down the river. So it is an inland port for all intents and purposes and would have attracted traders. Um, and we know from coin evidence and from ceramic evidence and other uh, small finds, other artifacts, that there were connections through one of the big trading sites in Northern Europe, which was Dorstadt. Um, so material was coming down the Rhine across the sea through the Humber and up the Ouse to York alongside the, the scholars and the clerics who would have been trying to spread the word through Europe at the same time. So we're really well into the end of the 7th and more into the 8th century before we see these things picking up. The, the main site that we understand this is the site that was excavated that I was referring to under the glass factory site at Fishergate where we accidentally stumbled upon Anglo-Saxon or Anglian artefacts and evidence of settlement, which does seem to have been associated with trade. There's quite a number of imported ceramics and other imports, a number of coins, but it's not unique. We do see that same pattern of imported coins and imported ceramics on both sides of the river. We didn't have 
large areas of the river to look at, but slowly, you know, information has built up over the years to see a scatter of these same sorts of continental coins along both sides of the river and a scatter of distinctive foreign imported pottery. So I see trade happening along both sides of the river as far down as Fishergate. Perhaps Fishergate, what we excavated there was something special, but it wasn't, it didn't stand in isolation. Uh, we have evidence along both the Foss and the Ooze. Piecemeal evidence, little scraps that you have to string together to make a story. Is there one discovery that would answer a question that you would really want to know the answer to? Well, I think it has to be the Minster area to understand where you know St Peter's Church was. I don't know if the evidence has survived. I don't know if the evidence is still there. Um, there was a large water tank dug in Dean's Park to hold water during the war um, in case the Minster was struck. What was found when that hole was dug is very, very intriguing. Um, but to understand that complex, I think, is the El Dorado of the Anglian period. That's a nice phrase. <laughs> Talking about the Coppergate helmet, would it have been lost in battle? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting piece. The, the reason why it's so well preserved is because of how carefully it was deposited in a well. It wasn't just lobbed away in a rushed manner. It, the cheek pieces were detached, folded inwards, the chain mail was taken off, wrapped into a ball, and it was probably stuffed into a cloth sack and then dropped into a well in Coppergate, which would have been, in the Anglian period, probably not the trade centre it became after the Vikings arrived. Um, but it was deposited more or less around the year when the Vikings conquered York, so a period of civil stress and um, uh, warfare. But of course all of Northumbria was not constantly at warfare, but definitely quite regularly at warfare um, in this time period, in the 800s we've now moved to. So this helmet remains in someone's possession from the 750s all the way to the 860s. It's of course probably not the same person, unless they live to be 110, but perhaps the same lineage at least, passed down from father to son is one theory, or it was taken from a corpse and then became part of someone else's lineage and then passed down to their son. But whatever the case, it was clearly valued enough to be deposited very carefully during a period where York was being taken over by a foreign force. So we're closing again on a group of heavily armed men turning up. Yeah, history uh, repeats. And these are the people that York is, at the moment, most famous for. Yes. They've already started raiding. York's famous academic son, Alcuin, is written about them. Lamented about them. <laughs> and scolded people about haircuts. Again, well, that has some connection to the previously mentioned divide between Irish Christianity and Roman Christianity. And Alcuin's slander after the Lindisfarne raid in AD 793 may have some connection to the slow sort of degrading of Northumbria as a centre of power. You've got a lot of these warring kings who are just obsessed with power, with becoming the man on the throne rather than bettering the kingdom. But it goes back to that even modern mantra of not just the grass is greener on the other side, but the grass was greener back then. Um, we all tend to look at the past very fondly. 
And when you have a charismatic ruler like King Oswald, 150 years before your time, who's remembered as a saint everywhere in your time, you're going to start comparing him to modern rulers who are squabbling and fighting constantly. And you'll start to be like, this is the reason the Vikings are here, because you're not as good as King Oswald. Right. Northumbria's gone to the dogs. Yeah. But again, because it's an unreliable historical source, we don't even know if that's true. There's, there's probably some degree of economic decline in Northumbria, but it goes back to that ebb and flow that I keep mentioning. But the points of view of Alcuin, at least, this Christian in an international court, definitely believes that Northumbria has gone to the dogs, which gives us some viewing to the mindset of the upper class, or the ecclesiastical upper class at the time. He's in Charlemagne's court, so he's not on the ground. No. And it takes a while for these heavily armed men to turn up, doesn't it? In terms of the wider Viking age, yes, it's a long period. We tend to view it very Anglo-centrically, so we view the Viking age as nothing happened, and then in AD 793, suddenly Lindisfarne was attacked. Um, This is almost definitely not what happened. Going back to the Emporia, these trading sites that are dotted up and down the North Sea coast in Frisia, in France and England, um, they're generating a lot of money that's flowing into Scandinavia. And at the same time, roughly around the 600s, 700s, Scandinavia, both linguistically, technologically and politically, is evolving into a series of small kingdoms with a unique culture that is distinct from uh, Germania, if you like, and where some of their culture would have originated from. It's distinct from the rest of Europe. It's not Christianized, and there's a drive for warriors to rise up in that culture. And that's where you start to see raiders. At first, we think they headed east to islands off the coast of Estonia, down the rivers Volga and Naper into modern-day Ukraine, and then these Scandinavians start to raid westwards. There's evidence in Fortriu, which is coterminous with modern Moray in Atlantic Scotland, of Pictish monasteries being burned in the late 700s. Um, They weren't writing anything down, and West Saxon courts, which are chronicling this time period, clearly don't care about the Pictish monasteries, so they're not mentioning. Um, But as soon as these mysterious force that's burning monasteries down reaches Lindisfarne, which is a really significant site, all of a sudden, it's all pencils blazing. Oh my God, the Vikings are here. Uh, these religious centres are being attacked. When in actuality, it was probably a slow process that had begun quite a bit before Lindisfarne as Scandinavians worked their way down uh, Scotland and then into northern England, r- raiding or at first trading. Because Scandinavians were in England much earlier than the Viking Age, from the 500s onwards probably, and they were contributing linguistically, Uh, via trade in York and other Wick sites, and also through their material culture. It goes back to the Anglo-Saxons as an identity group. They're from areas of Germany like Saxony, um, Angellan Peninsula in North Germany, and Jutland, which is Denmark. These are more or less the areas that the Vikings came from, give or take a few miles and give or take 250 years. But the the languages are very similar. So it's waves of people coming from over there every couple of hundred years. Yeah, but the reasons are different each time. So if we circle back after the Romans leave and you get these increasing waves of migration of Saxons and Anglians, the impetus for that migration 
is probably not the same impetus for the reason the Vikings or Scandinavians started to come over. Um, there's a climate disaster that happens in the mid-530s that um, scholar Neil Price has termed the Dust Veil event. Um, there's some kind of mass volcanic eruption in the Northern Hemisphere that lowers global temperature. This would have had a significant effect on Scandinavia and Northern Europe, which starts to push population centres further south, and they start to push the pre-existing population centres further west. This is the same time period, more or less, that Attila the Huns pushing people west, and the Justinian plague is displacing populations. So that might be one of the reasons why the Anglians and Saxons arrive in England. Whereas why the Vikings come over to England is because of that immense wealth that's been generated through the Wick sites up and down the English coast, and also the relatively undefended monasteries like Lindisfarne that have such gold and silver on display and ready for the taking. Ah, uh, that means more heavily armed men on the way. and the ones that York is currently most famous for. My thanks to our guests, Alex Harvey from the Yorkshire Museum, and Dr Elsa Mainman, author of Anglian York, which is published by Blackthorn Press. The spirit of York is Alison Willis. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North, and for links to further information, please look at our show notes. If you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City, and we hope you can join us next time.